0: and welcome. You're listening to the Genesis Podcast, the official podcast of the Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. It is our goal to inspire one another to change the world by effectively living in the way of Jesus. Check out our website, thegenesisstory.com. There you can learn more about us, where and when we meet, ways to invest in support, but most importantly, how to get connected. Thank you for spending time with us today. All right, good morning. Happy New Year again. I know it's the second week, but it still feels a little bit new. I don't know about you guys, but I kind of like that new feeling. I like the idea. I've got my grandson over again for the weekend, so it's been a lot of fun. I just, especially as he's getting older and he understands my grandpa jokes. um, Right There's dad jokes, and then there's grandpa jokes that are even worse than dad jokes, so... I always ask him, what time is it right now? And he goes, I don't know. I go, it's noogie time. I go, and I give him a noogie. So that's a lot of fun. Hey, Nick. Um, anyway, I digress. Good to be here with you guys. Again, welcome to those of you who are following online or who are going to watch or listen later. Appreciate you uh, joining in. Want to remind you, too, that if you do give to Genesis, then you have, Gil has brought like the uh, your receipts, the tax receipts here. And if you aren't able to come here and get them, he will mail them out next month. And if you have a question... Actually, they'll be going out tomorrow. Oh, they'll be going out tomorrow. You will get them probably before next month. So that's how on the ball... I was going to say we are, but I didn't have anything to do with it. Gil is, but anyway, appreciate you and your generosity and supporting us. Appreciate you uh, being a part of this community in all the different ways that you are. And let's pause, let's pray as we get started this morning. Father, we believe that you are desiring to speak into our lives, and we want to hear what you would have to say in the way that you would want to say it. Even now, as we listen to the songs that Randy sings, participate in the songs, may they be more than songs and music. May they be prayers from our heart to you. May it evoke an emotion that draws us to you by your spirit. And may our time together be enriched because it is time spent with you. Thank you for this opportunity for us to get together. Lord, we are so mindful of all the tragedy and heartache that is happening around our world. And we are grateful to be here, but we are not without heartbreak for those things that are happening around us. And so we come to you in the complexity of life, Lord, asking that you do meet us here. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking of what to talk about this morning. Had a few things going through my mind and kind of running over some titles. Um, Decided to call this talk Reclaiming the Bible. Uh, That was in contrast to Rick and Randy's title, which was Make the Bible Great Again. Um, Which I thought was pretty good. Um, But anyway too early. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's not early enough. Um, But anyway, I wanted to talk about the Bible because I think that people have put a lot of expectations on the Bible that the Bible has not asked us to put on. It's like having a child, a seven-year-old kid, and, you know, expecting them to play like an all-pro basketball player, right? And when they get to the free throw and they only, you know, are shooting 40%, well, actually Shaq was only about 40%, so he could be all-pro. But you, you're you expecting more from him, right? And you say, that's not my child. Well, the fault isn't the child. The fault's in your understanding and expectations. And, and I think that has happened... With scripture, most of us never have encountered a different view of the scripture than that which we were taught from whatever tradition we were brought up in. It becomes the sole focus. I remember when I would go to conferences when I was at Calvary Chapel, all the speakers were Calvary pastors. And if you're a Baptist and you go to a Baptist conference, I imagine they're all Baptists. And if you go to a Pentecostal, they're probably all Pentecostal. And everyone kind of stays in their own group. And so you start hearing things that reverberate in that group and then anything that comes from the outside is so foreign. It's like a, the white blood cells attacking it, trying to get rid of it, right? Oh, no, don't listen to that. that that's going to cause you to stumble. That's going to make you go astray. And so there's this kind of hesitancy to listen to things that are outside. And so our view becomes very narrow and our understanding becomes very limited, you know, when we start thinking of the Bible or even talking the Bible, one of the first questions might be, well, which Bible are you talking about? And you can put slide one up, Rick, right? Our current Protestant Bible has 66 books in it, but the Catholic Bible has 73 books in it. The Wycliffe Bible has 77 books, and you really get your money's worth in the Eastern Orthodox Bible that has 81 books, right? And so you might not even know that there are those different Bibles out there. Why is ours better than theirs? What is it different about theirs? Do we even have an understanding of that or how the Bible was compiled? And so already we start to see that the Bible has a lot to be explored and understood, that it's not as simple as, oh yeah, here's the Bible. It's as if it was dropped out of heaven and we all got the same book, and it's that clear. It's just not. And so I want to talk about a little bit of history and development on our Bible, the ones that most of us have here today with the 66 different books in it. And even though it's going to be a little bit informative, I hope that it also moves us to a little more thoughtfulness, right? So it's not just, here's some information, now you know how things are. Information that is supposed to move us to ask more questions or to just think maybe outside of the frames that we've been limited to or limited in. And so about 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was born. And about 30 CE, because of the things that he said and because of the things that he did, he got the attention of the religious leaders and the Roman government, and he was put to death. His followers asserted in writing and in their words and in their life that he had risen again from the dead. But as far as we know, nothing was written substantially about Jesus for two or three decades after that. So about 20 or 30 years, we have no known writings about Jesus. And then we have, the Pauline epistles. This is the next slide, Rick. Estimating time about 50 to 65 CE is when the epistles of Paul were written. The first gospel was written about 70 CE. Then Matthew and Luke were written at about 80 to 90 CE. And then John was the last gospel written about 100 CE. We kind of did a series on that, talking about how John was really trying to fill in, I think, some of the things in the previous gospels, because he would have been aware of them. But we start to see that this is sometime after, and these writings were in circulation among small communities and got passed around throughout Asia, throughout Rome, the various cities, and we don't know how far they went, but we know that they started to circulate quite a bit. But we have to remember that Christianity existed without a Bible in any form for nearly 400 years, and the church thrived. Just think about that, right? Think Think about how our idea of the Bible being so foundational to our faith that can you even be a Christian if you don't read your Bible? is the, the posture of some people, and yet the church existed and thrived for 400 years without any Bible of any kind. I remember when I went to China, and we were bringing Bibles into the, into China, there was this incredible revival taking place in China where they had like 6 million Christians sprung up and that was without any missionaries, without anyone going and preaching the gospel. How'd that happen? right, that's not the way it works. Again, it just shows us, well, maybe it does. And so just having this understanding about, There's been no Bible for 400 years. And then in 325 CE, Constantine called the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, and they were trying to declare the official views of the church. What is it that he started to adopt? Christianity is now going to be the main religion belief of the empire. What are these beliefs? And at that time, they started compiling writings to try and verify which ones were circulated at the time, early times when Christ was followers were alive. What were his followers talking about? So that they could have some authenticity because a lot of things were later being written that they were saying, yeah, but this this was written, you know, 200, 300 years later. It's far removed from the event. So let's try and get things closer to the event so that we can substantiate them a little bit more. And various writings were compiled to establish these views. And between 400 and C100 CE, the 27 books that make up our New Testament became the official canon of Christianity, including those in the Old Testament. And that's where we have the varying books, depending on the different places that they come from. And because of the cost that it took to compile a Bible, only very wealthy people or the organized church were able to have a Bible and open it. So your everyday Christian did not have a Bible. They had to go somewhere, hear someone read it. And then again, as we've talked about before, it was never done in solitary spaces. It was done in community spaces. The next slide, Rick, it says, For the first 1,500 years of the church, most Christians could not read the Bible for themselves. 1,500 years. That is not that long ago. The majority of people who believed in Jesus did not have, could not read or open a Bible Again, let that sink in into what we are asking the Bible to be for us today. It could not be in any way, shape, or form not that long ago. And I think that's illuminating. Now, with the Gutenberg Press, all of a sudden now, the ability to mass produce writings became so proficient that they became more affordable, and more readily available. And because of that, they started to fall into the hands of more and more people. And because they had access to scriptures and were able to develop theologies outside of the big and the few churches that were there, like the Roman church, they started coming up with different understandings. And there was a monk named Martin Luther who didn't like what he was seeing in the organized church and what he was reading, and now the Bible he had available to him. And so he nailed his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door and started what we now know as the Reformation, developing different ideologies, different theological doctrines from that of the Roman church. And one of the things that he stated as he started protesting against the power of the church, it was called solo scriptura, which means scripture alone. Now, that was to combat the traditions being promoted by the Roman church, like paying for indulgences. Like you want your loved one to go to heaven, you gotta pay money to the church and we'll pray him out of purgatory, things like that. He had a hard time dealing with these things and so he was saying solo scriptura, but solo scriptura and biblical inerrancy are not the same thing. They're not even close, right? One has to do with authority. The other has to do with perfection. Now, Martin Luther thought that the gospel of John, the book of Romans and first Peter were the three books that the whole Bible should be shaped around. He didn't believe that the book of James or the book of Revelation were inspired by God or should even be in the Bible. So the reformer who said solo scriptura had a different understanding of what that meant than I think we mean today. He didn't think all of it was divine from God and perfect. He just was saying, this should be the authority of how we govern, not the church and whatever they feel. We should go to this book and decide how things look instead of just thinking on our own or letting the powers that be, and then having a discussion about it from there. And so when and why did the notion of inerrancy become so important? It wasn't in writing. It wasn't anywhere seen until much, much later. We start to see it happen around 1859 when... Charles Darwin came out with his published book On the Origin of the Species, that the diversity of life is the result of a common descent through evolution. It changed the way human beings started to perceive themselves, and it started a panic in the American Christian church. And so theologians started to develop apologetics for the Christian faith, to argue against Darwin's theory. in Princeton Theological Seminary, where they attacked the work of Darwin, two professors, Archibald Alexander Hodge and Benjamin Warfield crafted a document that served as the ultimate response to Darwin's findings. And we see the phrase biblical inerrancy for the first time. The next slide, in 1881, Hodge and Warfield made inerrancy an article in the Presbyterian Confession of Faith. 1881 is when we see the phrase inerrancy. It wasn't anywhere in writing before that. And when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about the Bible is without air concerning things of faith and life. And it became something where it became even in science. How What it says is inerrant. We have to believe it literally. But we don't see any leanings in that way until 1881. That's not that long ago. But when we hear things, well, the Bible is the word of God, and it's always been the word of God, and it's inerrant, and it's, you know, this... Well, where did we get that from? Well, we got it from here, from these guys, the writing and combating what Darwin was proclaiming in his writings. And so they felt attacked against those things, which maybe they shouldn't have felt, but that was a response to those writings. And then about 100 years later in Chicago, about 200 church leaders hammered out a universal understanding about the perfection of scripture. And they represented many different denominations, 30 different seminaries, and their title was the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. And they produced the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy and voted that statement as Orthodox Christian Belief. So a 100 years after we see the idea of inerrancy, we have this publication saying, this is what orthodox Christianity is. Anything that doesn't believe that the Bible is perfect and inerrant is not Christian. The preface of the official statement reads, the following statement affirms this inerrancy of scripture afresh, making clear our understanding of it and warning against its denial. We are persuaded that to deny the inerrancy of Scripture is to set aside the witness of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and to refuse that submission to the claims of God's own word, which marks true Christian faith. Anything that doesn't believe the Bible's perfect and inerrant is not Christian, in fact, is an attack on the Christian faith. We saw nothing in the writing, nothing in the declaration before the 1800s, and now it's become the standard of what is supposed to be Christianity. This is why many Christians today believe that in order to be a devoted Christian, they must believe the Bible to be the perfect Word of God. And remember, there was no Bible for 400 years. For 1,500 years, few people had access to the Bible. And then in the 1800s, it became inerrant and perfect. And 100 years after that, this was the foundation that they were building on. Just a little history, which I think is illuminating. I I think it's telling that these things are happening. So the Bible was compiled around 400 CE and the doctrines of inerrancy about 1500 and then later in 1800. And so when we come across different passages in scripture that seem to contradict, if you hold this view of inerrancy, you are forced to an interpretation that reconciles the passage. You have to because it's perfect, it can't have any contradiction. And so then what do you do when you come to a passage, the next slide, in Proverbs, right? Proverbs 26, verse four, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness or you'll be like him yourself. The very next verse, answer a fool according to his foolishness or he'll become wise in his own eyes. They're saying the exact opposite thing. What do you do with that if the Bible is supposed to be perfect and inerrant and you see this kind of conflict? Do you say there's a misunderstanding? Most of the time, people just read those as if they're not even in conflict. The whole intention, I think, of those two verses is conflict. The whole purpose is to say there are these two sides and there's a whole world in between. Sometimes it's like this. And sometimes it's like this. Well, which one? Depends. Depends who you're talking to. Depends on the conversation. Depends on the the intent of the conversation. Depends on the demeanor of the person. What are you trying to convey? It depends on so many things. But what do you do when there's that contradiction and you have this idea that the Bible has to be perfect? You have to iron it out somehow. This contradiction is not a problem. The problem is the doctrine of inerrancy that does not allow the Bible to be what it really is. There's another story, beloved story of David and Goliath. And I love this one because in 1 Samuel 17... We have the story as it begins, and we have the story of Goliath, and it talks about him in verse four of that chapter. He's the champion named Goliath from Gath. He came out of the Philistine camp. In verse seven, his spear shaft was like a weaver's beam. And then show the next slide, Rick. First Samuel 17, verse 50, it says, David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. But the next book that we have, 2 Samuel, chapter 21, it says, once again, there was a battle with the Philistines at Gob and Elihan, son of Jaorogim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath of Gath. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. So who killed Goliath? Was it David or was it this guy? Well, if you go to Chronicles, it says that this guy was actually the brother of Goliath because they're trying to iron things out, but you have a contradiction. And I think there's something beautiful taking place here. But if you have this idea of inerrancy, we have to make the Bible perfect, you will miss the nuances that might be there. You guys wanna hear my take on it? Okay. If you read 1 Samuel 16, And the previous chapters before David kills Goliath, we see David going before Saul, King Saul, and he's his cupbearer. And Saul asks who his dad is. And Saul has this connection with David. Then you get to the story of Goliath and David comes to the camp and Saul is, who is this kid? It's like, he doesn't even know him. And then the story of Goliath happens. And at the end of the story, it says that David took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem, which didn't exist under Saul's reign. I feel like you've got a story about a king being promoted to promote the king. Now I know in our day and age, politics never exaggerates and is always very clear, right? But then somewhere you've got someone who says, you know, there was this guy named Elian and he killed Goliath. See, they knew about these other writings, but someone wanted to just say something that I think maybe might've been true. Who are you gonna believe? The king who has the control over the media or this one little scribe who says, I saw something. I think that's just interesting. I think that's beautiful. I love contemplating that. I think that's what the Bible allows us to do. But if we have to hold on to inerrancy, we can't even go there because now I'm undermining the Bible. I think the Bible undermines itself intentionally to provoke us to inquire more deeply. Placing a burden on the Bible that it was never meant to bear blinds us to the beauty of the Bible and what really is there. And so now being free from this man-made constraint and constructs of inerrancy and infallibility, instead of reading the Bible literally, we can start reading it literarily, reading it in literature form and and allowing it to have a little bit broader scope. And recognizing that the Bible is composed of different genres. And good Bible reading begins with good genre recognition. Recognition. And Pete Enns has a book, How the Bible Really Works, that's great, that talks about this more extensively. The next slide, Rick. In the Old Testament, these are some of the genres we see. There's mythic. There's wisdom, there's folklore, there's law, and there's epic narrative. In the New Testament, we have biographies of Jesus, the gospel, the letters of Paul, the different epistles, and the apocalyptic revelation. Now, what happens if you take the book of Genesis that's perhaps mythic and telling stories and even poetic, and you try to make it historic or scientific? Then you've got a problem when the first day happens before there's a sun created. How do you have a day when you don't have a sun? Or the differences between chapter one and chapter three, you have to iron them out and try and make things more sequential instead of it being a story being told to convey something other than scientific. And then if you have people who believe, In evolution, there's no problem. There are many Christians who are in the scientific community who believe in evolution. In some circles, that can't happen. Why? Because of inerrancy. This is how it happened. Where in a different mindset without inerrancy, of course there's room. It's not limited to this. The same is true in the New Testament. If you take a letter that Paul wrote to a small community in Corinth telling women that they should always have their heads covered, then try to make that something that applies to all women in every century everywhere what are you doing, right? He didn't even ask the women in Rome to do the same thing as the women in Corinth. Or if Paul says circumcision means nothing, but then has Timothy circumcised, you've got problems. Unless you understand that there's complexity in the different communities and in the time that Paul is writing. Or if you have John, the writer in Revelation talking about locusts who are marching like horses and have crowns and faces like men, and you think he's either on an acid trip or he's talking about helicopters, not understanding the literature, understanding that it's meant to be exaggerated, meant to invoke emotion, meant to portray something extreme, then you come up with all kinds of crazy ideas, right? And that's what runs rampant today in the time of the church. That's why we can disagree with the Bible when it tells us that we should beat our children with rods or stone them to death for disobedience and still believe it to be inspired by God or think slavery is horrific even when it is tolerated and in some place given support in the Bible. If we make the Bible into something it's not, we are in danger of losing what it really is, an ancient, diverse, ambiguous book that requires thoughtful discussion that can help inspire us to a deeper understanding of God. If you take what is written in the first century to a small group and try to apply it to every century and every group everywhere, you are going to have problems. And that's what I fear is being done. Again, there are books that you can read that have a lot more information than what I'm giving here today. P. Denz's book, How the Bible Really Works. Rob Bell's book is not as theological, but what is the Bible, how an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. I like that extra text. Just give you some different ideas on how we read the Bible and what it's here for, right? We've been here for years now, and I still teach from the Bible, even though I presented all these things here, I still, the Bible is my sacred book. It's my sacred text. I, I don't understand other sacred texts. I don't understand the Quran or, the, or even books of Mormon or those things. Those aren't my sacred texts. This is. And I don't have to try and put those down to make mine better. I'm still trying to figure out mine. But let's not limit the Bible by putting constraints on it that were never there in the beginning. They were never meant to be there. They were put there in fear of the loss of power, I believe. And by wanting to maintain power, they wanted to place a structure that would be able to use it to conform people to stay in a specific way of thinking and believing. And it only happened a few hundred years ago. That should allow us room to think, discuss, question, challenge, and wonder about what's being said and the things that we read. Let's pray. Father, I know there are many people who will think these words are hostile to the Bible, but they are only hostile to a way of thinking of the Bible. Lord, I pray that we would not be blind to who you are because of limitations that we have put in our way. May we have the freedom to engage, to question, to wonder. May we have the freedom to read other material that talks about things like different genres, that talks about questions in the text, that explores what is happening, what is being said, and why it's being said, and allow those things to minister to us, to see how beautiful and complex some of these writings are without trying to constrain them. And I pray that this would provoke conversation here today and tomorrow in our lives, that it would challenge us in how we read as well as encourage us to continue reading. And I do ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. May we we reclaim the Bible from the constraints of men to make it something it was never meant to be and allow God to speak to us where we are and the things that we see, read, and live. God bless you guys. Have an amazing week. See ya. You've been listening to the official podcast of Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. If you've been encouraged, found hope, been challenged by what you've heard, we'd like to ask you to help spread the word by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. You can also help support our podcast by visiting us at thegenesisstory.com. It has been our pleasure to have you join us today, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.